0: Good morning. It's good to be back together Uh, again. If you are not aware of who I am, my name is Travis Sharp. Um, It is my honor to get to fill in for Chris for a couple of weeks while he gets uh, a much-deserved break through the month of June. And so uh, I'm glad to be here and glad to be a part of this. Uh, If you were here last week or if you listened to us online, you know that we started a series on costly grace. When I talked to Chris about what do you want us to cover for these couple of weeks while you're gone, he said discipleship, which could go any number of different directions. Um, And so really wanted to narrow down on this idea of the fact that discipleship, that following Jesus, it should make a difference in what we do every single day. Uh, It should cause us to be different than the world around us. Uh, It's gonna cause us to look a little weird at times uh, for people to look at us differently. Um, But it's also gonna cause us to to live out our faith in ways that really matter. Uh, I love the way Peter describes faith in 1 Peter, uh, a verse that we often talk about, which is always be prepared to give an answer uh, for the hope that you have. But before that, he talks about serve your neighbors, love them, be willing to let others go first. And then when people ask you, what's different about you? You say, I'm ready to give you an answer. Um, And it's about my hope in Jesus. So that's kind of where we're going this week. I hope you stay with us in that. Uh, I did want to make, before I kind of get started, I want to make a couple of quick plugs. One, a ministry that's that's very near and dear to my heart because it was a part of Grace Bridge for all the years uh, that I was over there is Father's Table. It's moved over here uh, since Grace Bridge closed its doors. It meets uh, not this Wednesday, but next Wednesday, and it's just a food distribution. And somehow in the move from two miles down the road over here, lots of people have gotten lost uh, that used to serve. We used to serve a hundred families uh, a week when they would come in and it's dwindled down. And we just want to let you know, if you know of a family that needs food, um, have them come next Wednesday uh, during the day. It's just a free food giveaway. If you need uh, more information, uh, Gail Davenport uh, can give you all the information you need. She has, she and a couple of others have been running this for years and do a wonderful job Um, And so, if you know of someone that needs food, uh, send them up here uh, to East Brainerd next Wednesday, so the 21st. Uh, Second plug that I want to let you know, if you have, uh, if you just, for some reason, have nothing to listen to in the car, or on your run, or when you're biking, or you don't want to do your work, so you want to listen to a podcast, there is a podcast that that Sean and Stephen do every week. Um, And through the summer, we're actually talking about the sermons that are happening. So last Monday, we got together, and we talked about the sermon from last Sunday. And it's not really a reminder overview. It's kind of, how did this get you thinking, and how does it kind of go from there? So we're going to get together again tomorrow morning and record that, and then Stephen and Sean will put that out. And so if you just want something to listen to, they're going to keep doing that Uh, through the summer, following the sermons, and then there's all kinds of interviews and things on there of different people at church and different things going on. Uh, If you just need something to listen to, that's there. Today, if you have your Bibles, if you would turn over to 1 Kings 18. 1 Kings 18, a story that some of you may be familiar with. It's a longer passage today, uh, but I want us to get the full story, so I want to read the whole thing. 1 Kings 18, starting in verse 17. The word of the Lord this morning. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And Elijah answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, you and your father's house, because you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now therefore have all Israel assemble for me at Mount Carmel with the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent to all the Israelites and assembled the prophets at Mount Carmel. Elijah then came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping with two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. And then Elijah said to all the people, I, even I, only am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets number 450. Let two bulls be given to us. Let them choose one bull for themselves, cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood and put fire to it, but not put fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord, the God who answers by fire, is indeed God. And all the people answered, well spoken. And then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for you are many. And then call on the name of your God, but put no fire to it. So they took the bull that was given them, prepared it, and called on the name of Baal from morning until noon, crying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice and no answer. They limped about the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, surely he is a god. Either he is meditating or he's wandered away or he's on a journey. Perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud. And as was their custom, they cut themselves with swords and lances until the blood gushed out over them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice, no answer, and no response. And then Elijah said to all the people, come closer to me. And all the people came closer to him. First, he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And then he made a trench around the altar, large enough to contain two measures of seed. Next, he put the wood in order, cut the bull in pieces, and laid it on the wood. He said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And then he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. Again, he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. So that the water ran all around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, the prophet Elijah came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your bidding. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, so that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. And then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering, the wood, the stones, and the dust, and even licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord indeed is God. The Lord indeed is God. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I first encountered Christopher Wright's The Mission of God for a graduate class from a master's program. Like any good student, my first reaction when it arrived in the mailbox from Amazon was shock at the mere size of the work. Wright's work is a massive volume with the hardcover being a good two and a half to three inches thick and some 600 pages long. It was also clear from a quick flip through the pages that this was not a 600 page fiction story with a plot that would easily carry you from one page to the next. No, this was an academic read with footnotes and technical terms and lots of research that was going to make this a chore to work through at times. Now, many students would find this book in their mailbox after ordering the required text from the syllabus and quickly determined that this book was going to be scanned at best, and then a response paper constructed from simply examining the section headings throughout each chapter. I, however, have been cursed with the personality of being a rule follower, which meant that I could not... And I repeat, I really could not just scan the book and pretend I had read it. No, if the professor had put a book as a required text, I was going to read it and engage the text, even if I didn't enjoy the book, because I am a rule follower, and that's what rule followers do. And for those of you who are rule followers, you know, it's both a blessing and a curse. In this instance, I'm thankful I'm a rule follower and that I read the text because While I didn't realize it at the time, as I look back, Wright's work, The Mission of God, has become one of the top five most influential books of my life. I didn't know that when I first began reading. I didn't know this book would help shape the way I see God and God's role in the world. All I knew is I had a daunting task of trying to digest 600 pages of scholarly work and then be prepared to write a response essay as well as discuss the work in class. I must admit, the first few chapters were catching my attention, and I was enjoying the read so far. Sure, there was some technical prose that at times got dull, but mostly the information was making sense, as Wright was trying to explain God's mission in the world and God's overall plan for the creation. But then I flipped over to chapter 5, and the title was discouraging and seemed pointless. Wright had hinted this chapter was coming, but now that I was here, how could I go on? Like the moment in your daily Bible reading as you're trying to read the Bible in the year and you hit Leviticus and you think the title alone is enough to make you want to give up reading the text. That's the way I felt when I flipped the page and read the title of chapter 5. The living God confronts idolatry. Really? An entire chapter about idolatry? This doesn't even seem relevant to my life. I've never been tempted to bow down to an idol. I don't have a secret idol stashed in my house somewhere in an inner sanctum of holiness, of worship. When I visited the Parthenon in Nashville, or I've been at ancient temples in other parts of the world, it's never crossed my mind to bow down to the gods. I get it. Idolatry was a big deal in the Old Testament, and even the New Testament. Those were ancient, uneducated times. They hadn't studied science or the universe. They had no understanding of how things actually worked in the world. But we've gone through modernism. We've experienced the scientific revolution. We know idols are merely rock and stone. So why do I need to read 60 pages about how the living God confronts idolatry? There's no way this is relevant to my life. maybe there's some backwoods place in the mountains of South America or in the back jungles of Africa in which some small tribe still bows down to idols. But in America, in the West, in our postmodern, highly educated environment, no one actually thinks idols are real. Do they? We had a magnet on our refrigerator growing up that had a formative impression on me, even though it was never really talked about and my own parents have long forgotten it even existed. Yet it was there every day, staring me in the eyes as I went for another glass of milk or grabbed the jelly for peanut butter and jelly sandwich. It had a classic late 70s, early 80s design, utilizing a yellow and brown color scheme with a decorative flowery montage. It wasn't large by any means, probably one inch by two and a half inches but written on the magnet was Joshua 24, 15. Choose this day whom you will serve, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Every day. It was an unspoken reminder of who we were as a family and what was most important in our lives. Even though it wasn't written in a personalized way, I always interpreted it that way. Choose this day whom you will serve, but as for the Sharp family, we will serve the Lord. Nothing flashy. Nothing in your face, just a basic declaration of where our allegiance stood. And while I assumed the words were spoken by Joshua, and I knew enough Bible history to know that Joshua was the one who helped lead the people of Israel into the promised land, I really didn't get the context of the verse. Joshua 24 is the last chapter in the book of Joshua. And in many ways, it's Joshua's farewell of speech to the people. Joshua had led the people of Israel from the time of Moses through the conquest of the land of Israel, fulfilling the promises made to Abraham a few hundred years before. It was Joshua who sent the priests into the Jordan River carrying the Ark of the Covenant. And when their feet hit the water of the Jordan River, the water parted just like the Red Sea had parted a generation before, and the people walked through on dry ground. It was Joshua who had marched the people around the walls of Jericho for seven days, and on the seventh day marched them around seven times, and then blew the trumpets and watched the walls come tumbling down. It was Joshua who led the battles against the conglomeration of the northern kingdoms and the southern kingdoms as they tried to unite together to defeat God, the God of Israel. And it was Joshua who had stationed half the people on Mount Gerizim and half the people on Mount Ebel to announce the covenant blessings and curses for the people to follow. But now it's late in Joshua's life. Peace, at least for the most part, had arrived. And with it, some of the dangers that Moses had warned about in the book of Deuteronomy. When you enter the land the Lord your God has given you, and you live in houses you did not build, and eat from crops you did not plant, and drink from wells you did not dig, don't forget the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Don't forsake the Lord your God and start to think that with my own hand and my own hard work I have created and done these things. And don't go after the gods of the land in which you come to live and bow down to them and worship them. For the Lord your God is a jealous God. These were the fears and the warnings that Moses had expressed to the people in the book of Deuteronomy which was Moses' farewell address to the people. And now, a generation later, Joshua nears the end of his life and the end of his time in leadership. And he's starting to see some of the fears and the warnings be realized. And so Joshua calls the communal assembly. He has the entire community come together to hear Joshua's farewell address. He reminds them of where they've been. You were slaves in Egypt, a land not your own. But God rescued you with a mighty hand and a powerful arm from Pharaoh king of Egypt. God led you through the wilderness feeding you daily with manna and quail and protecting you from all the nations that tried to harm you. The Amalekites, along with Sihon king of Bashan and or Sihon king of the Amorites and Og king of Bashan. And then God brought you into the land in which you now live, into houses you did not build and crops you did not plant. And God defeated the nations which were entrenched in this land, nations stronger and more powerful than you. God did this because of the promises made to your ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now I lay before you a choice. God has done this for you, but you now have a choice. You can worship the gods your ancestors worshipped beyond the river. You can worship the gods in the land in which you now live, or you can worship the Lord, your God, who rescued you from Egypt. You get to choose. So choose this day whom you will serve. Pick anyone you want. But I'll tell you what I'm going to do, Joshua says. As for me and my household, we're going to worship the Lord. There is no divided allegiance here. There is no wavering between two opinions. I've seen the options and I know what I will choose. I will choose the Lord. There we sat in the basement of Burton Bible Building for an afternoon session of our week-long intensive class on Christian ethics. The classroom sat below ground level with some windows around the ceiling of the room that would sometimes let some light into our underground room that at times felt more like a dungeon than a classroom. A few of the ceiling tiles were missing. And while we never saw wildlife crawl out from the rafter heights, it always felt like it was a possibility. In the back corner was a closet that was always locked and housed part of the ancient heating unit that would at times kick on in the middle of class and provide a nice low rumble or hum that made it just a little bit harder to hear the professor speak. It was not the oldest classroom on campus, but it sure felt like it at times. And while I've long since forgotten the actual room number, I know that almost all of my undergrad and graduate Bible classes were housed in that room until eventually some benevolent donor felt sorry enough for us that they gave money for a new building to be built to house the Bible department. But this was before the generous donation. So there we sat in our afternoon session of a week-long intensive class in our underground classroom that felt more like a dungeon than a classroom. Our professor had invited a colleague in that afternoon to share some of the things he had currently been wrestling with when it comes to trust and security and in what we depend on. We were sitting in a circle that afternoon, I remember it well. I was sitting to the right of the guest speaker. And he began by asking some very simple questions. Do you have health insurance? Do you have life insurance? Do you have a retirement fund, a, a 401k plan? Why? What ensued was an hour-long lively discussion about finances, money, savings, wide stewardship, and trust. It wasn't the type of conversation in, one w- in which one gets to a definitive answer. It was in reality the type of conversation that produces more questions than answers. And at the heart of all the questions were some fundamental questions. In what have I placed my security? In what have I placed my trust? Am I in danger of trusting in the false god of mammon? And while that conversation has now been over 20 years ago, I still wrestle internally with the questions raised that day. Now, I'll be honest. I have a 401k plan that I contribute to out of every paycheck I have for many years. It's not going to make me filthy rich in retirement, but I hope I'll at least get to retire at some point. We've been saving some money up for college since the kids were small, and while it's not going to be enough to pay their way, it's more than what I had when I went to college. We have life insurance policies that will hopefully get our children through college if something drastic were to happen to Stacy or myself. We carry health insurance every year because with five people in the family, someone is bound to get sick or break a bone or possibly worse. We try to live within our means, not carry debt. It's wise stewardship. It's wise financial planning. I believe God wants us to be wise with the resources that we've been given. And yet, and yet I sometimes have to ask myself, is my future secure because I believe I'm saving enough out of every paycheck to provide for a nice retirement income? Or do I have a secure future because my trust is in God? Do I trust that my children will be taken care of if something were to happen to me because I've taken out enough life insurance? Or do I trust that my children will be taken care of because God promises to take care of them? Do I feel secure because I've tried to be a wise steward of the resources God has given me? Or do I feel secure because I know and trust that God is taking care of me? I'm not here today to question anyone's financial decisions or insinuate that one shouldn't be wise with resources and save for the future. And I'm definitely not saying that if you have a retirement fund or you have insurance that somehow you're sinning, I've already said, I save for retirement, I have insurance. There's no judgment, I promise. I'm simply raising the question that I struggle with when I think about financial security. Where have I put my trust? Where have I put my hope? Is my trust in my financial ability or is my trust in God? God alone is to be the source of my, sec- my security. And whenever I look to some other created thing as a source of my security, instead of looking to God, I have committed idolatry. Idolatry seems like an interesting term to use in our current setting. Idols are rock and stone, statues to be built to look like people or animals that we somehow give divine qualities to. I get that Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, you can't serve God in money, but idolatry? What exactly is idolatry? Idolatry is worshiping something that's created instead of the creator. It's treating some sort of created thing as equal with God or looking to some sort of created thing for fulfillment or to make us whole. Idolatry blurs the proper lines of relationships and turns relationships upside down. Idolatry takes one's undivided attention off of God and places it on something that is not God. God is thus in competition with an idol for prominence. God is important, but of equal importance is a career or family or even objects like money and food or our marriage. In reality, idolatry is about finding our completeness outside of God and in some other thing, food, career, achievement, or even self. Instead of believing the promise that God is good and is all that is needed for life, fulfillment in life is sought through some other means. Idolatry takes God off the throne and instead exalts its created things and gives created things more credit for something only God can do. As Christopher Wright says, a great reversal happens. God, who should be worshipped, becomes an object to be used. Creation, which is for our use and blessing, becomes the object of our worship. That's why idolatry now is just as dangerous, if not more so, than during the times of the Bible. In the Bible, idolatry was rock and stone and wood, easily defined and labeled as a perversion of what God desired. But today, Today, idolatry is much more subtle, found in ideologies and personal desires and family and friends and achievement and greed. Anything can become the desire of one's fulfillment because it takes one's focus off of God and places as a focus on some other thing. And because God made us to be image bearers, we end up looking like the objects we worship because that which we spend our time with is what is most important in our lives. When Elijah climbed Mount Carmel to confront the prophets of Baal, Israel was dealing with many issues and mistakes. But they all centered around idolatry. Israel was no longer fully committed to Yahweh God. They could blame it on the evil reign of Ahab and Jezebel, or they could blame it on the split of the kingdom between Jeroboam and Rehoboam. There's enough blame to go around in many places. But the truth is, Israel was not fully committed to Yahweh God. The God who had rescued them from Egypt was in competition with some other created thing for the hearts and the minds of Israel's allegiance. And it was time for the competition to come to a head. Elijah's line of how long will you waver between two opinions is a key phrase because it helps us put Israel's idolatry in focus. Israel's problem was not that they had completely abandoned God. Throughout Israel's history, they almost never completely abandoned God. Sacrifices were still made in the temple, And the history of God's redemption of the people from Egypt was still shared. Israel's problem was not that they abandoned God. Israel's problem was that God was in competition. Israel would hedge their bets with multiple deities. Israel would worship Yahweh God and also worship Baal. Or Israel would worship God and also worship Asherah. Or Israel would worship God and also worship Molech. The list could go on and on. Israel would not abandon God completely. It's just that it was always God and. God and Baal. God and Asherah. God and fill in the blank. Israel had a divided allegiance. They were wavering between two opinions. And Elijah, speaking for Yahweh God, says it's time to stop. It's time to pick a side. It's time to declare your undivided allegiance. If Baal is God, great. Go worship Baal. Go all in. But if Yahweh is God, if the great I am is God, if the one who rescued you from slavery, from Egypt with a mighty hand and outstretched arm is the true God of the universe, then why are you messing around with these other created things? Why are you hedging your bets? Why are you trying to play both sides? It's embarrassing. Either worship God completely or walk away. This lukewarm faith is disgusting. As we read the text, the competition is comical. Baal never had a chance. In sports, coaches will always say, you have to play the game because you never know what's going to happen. But in this particular situation, we knew what was going to happen. Yahweh was going to win. Yahweh was the only one who could win. Because Baal wasn't real. Baal was no God. Baal was an idea, a thought, an ideology to follow, but created nonetheless. And no created thing was ever going to overcome the creator of all there is. Elijah even assumes the role of the teenager in the story, taunting his opponents with little jabs. Maybe Baal's asleep. You should scream a little bit louder. Maybe Baal's gone away on a trip. Should we give him some more time to come back? No one likes the kid who taunts the other team, but in this situation, we kind of enjoy it because it's comical. It makes us laugh. Did Israel really believe in this fake God? Did Israel really think this thing that they had created out of rock and stone was somehow real and could somehow fix their situation? What happened? Maybe a long time ago, it hadn't rained for a few days, and so someone said, Let's create a new God called Baal. Have him be in charge of sending rain. Then we'll worship Baal, and it will always rain. How silly. How comical. The idols we create are never enough. God alone is supreme. It's always easier to see the comical in others than in ourselves. It's easy to read the story of Elijah on Mount Carmel and laugh at the false hope Israel had in placing their trust in an idol. How silly they all were. Why did they ever put God in a competition with something else? It's easy to see the idols in others. It's harder to see the idols we bow down to on a daily basis. If I could just get one more promotion, then I'd feel good about my career like I had arrived. If I could just, if I could just find a relationship with someone I connected to, life would be happy. If I could just move into that neighborhood. If my political party could just gain control. If my marriage was just a little more fulfilling. If we had just a little more money. Then life would be good life would feel complete. Life would be meaningful. It's easy to laugh at Israel on Mount Carmel because it allows us to not laugh at ourselves and the idols we create in the world. And if we focus on Israel's mistakes on Mount Carmel, then we can continue to assume we aren't making any mistakes. We aren't bowing down to rock and wood and stone of our own making. Well, idolatry is still real. Our idols may not be rock and stone and wood, but they're just as deadly because they put God in competition for the throne of our lives. And God refuses to share the throne. Discipleship is about undivided devotion to God. It's about putting God first in every area of our lives, and it's about smashing the idols that sometimes get in the way and try to take over dominance of our hearts. Remember, we are pursuing costly grace. Which means that any idols we may have in our lives have to go. There's no waiting. There's no trying to share the throne. The idols go now. It's time to stop wavering between two opinions. The Lord alone is God. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he give you peace. I don't know where you're at this morning as you come. You may have come wanting to give your life to God, uh, either in baptism or, or to be rededicated. Uh, we want to provide that opportunity. If you want to take on Christ in baptism, the waters are ready, and we would love to stay a little longer today and celebrate that with you. Uh, or if you just need prayers, uh, maybe the Spirit was speaking to you this morning, maybe before you even arrived, or maybe through one of the songs that was sung, maybe through communion time, or maybe even by the words that were just spoken. Uh, And if you need prayers, there could be some elders in in the back that would love to pray with you. Or seriously, grab the person beside you and just say, I just need to stop for a moment and pray. Or if nothing else, use this song as a prayer uh, that you lift up to God, Uh, if you would hand and sing.